I found my mother's diary recently. When I was six weeks old, and this is 1944, my mother is writing, my poor little Gabor, you've been crying since three in the morning. My heart broke for you. But I couldn't pick you up to feed you until five o'clock because the doctors would be so angry with me because I learned to feed you on, 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 on schedule rather than on demand. And I didn't want to displease the doctors. So I had to let you cry for almost two hours. And finally at quarter to five, my heart broke and I couldn't do it anymore. And I picked you up and fed you, but don't think I'll do it again. Now, what's the message to a six weeks old who's desperate for maternal contact and this woman who absolutely adored me, who did everything she could to save my life, who, who absolutely loved me, and she's absolutely hurting me at the same time. And just how confusing that is for the infant. Now, you tell a mother bear to ignore the crying of the infant. You tell a mother cat to ignore the crying of the infant. The nat every fiber in my mother's being wanted to pick me up and nurture me, but because the doctors had told her not to. And this is how we tell parents now how to, how to parent. We tell them to sleep train their kids by not picking them up. Hunter-gatherer tribes, you know what they do? They never even put their kids down. In the state of nature, creatures don't put their kids down. That doesn't mean you, you're permissive. The kid wants a cookie before dinner, and you know better. You give him a cookie, he won't have dinner. You're not going to give him the cookie. But why shouldn't he be angry about it? You know, why should I be threatened by his anger? Why should I call that naughty? Why should I call that the terrible twos? Oh, you're angry, you're really upset, you really wanted that cookie. Yeah, that's okay. Well, I'm so sorry, you know, it's after dinner, you, you know. In other words, you're not permissive, but you're also not demanding that the child suppress their feelings right. in order to be in your presence. And you don't hold the relationship as ransom to them. That's exactly That's it. the dangerous you thing. Don't, you don't use the relationship against them. So I went on holiday this year. One week I spent with some family in like kind of a weird camp place in Germany, and the next week was in Bordeaux. I'll be honest, four days later, I left and flew mm. back to London alone mm. because I couldn't be the holiday dad. If you could recognize in that experience that there's something that's still missing for you in terms of your self-awareness, then that could be a teaching experience. You know, and, and I, I know that holiday boredom that you described. When I go on holiday, it actually takes me a while to relax into it. Now the problem is when you're with five other people or, or four other people, and you also have to be there for them when you can't even be there for yourself, then you have a real dilemma. And you're either pretending to be the holiday dad or you're being miserable. I understand the dilemma, but I'm not sure that you want to stay by that way for the rest of your life because yeah. you, you've got these two young kids. And what's the message to them and that is restless around them? That it's their fault. Yeah. And um, Thich Nhat Hanh, the uh, spiritual teacher, the Buddhist teacher said that the greatest gift a parent can give to their child is his or her own happiness. And when you're restless and unhappy around your kids, as I have been, they get a message that it's about them. So that's something good to recognize, as long as you take it on as a challenge. When I came upon it is as a therapist working with family after family and observing that here were parents who had completed the checklist. They had financial success. They had emotional longevity in long-term relationships. They had arrived. 
And yet there was a deep dysfunction or deep disconnection between themselves and their children. So that led me to be curious, you know, well, what is it? You know, if it isn't what we think it is, success, money, marriage, stability, uh, maturity, then what is it? And I began to see that it's this thing that I call consciousness, which is really the parent's inability to realize that there's, there's this thing called conditioning that obscures the ability to see the child for who it is. So because we've been conditioned, you, we don't even know we're so conditioned. Conditioned by our own childhood, by the unconsciousness of our parents. We're conditioned by culture in terms of norms, what is right. They've not been aware, they've not been attuned, they've not been aligned, they've just been doing what they were told was the right way to live. But what this does, this, this immediate placement of a way to be, obscures the ability for the child to develop their way, right? They never get to figure out who it is they are. They never hear the soul calling from within. They never hear the beat of their own essence. They just come to be herded into cattle. And this is where there's a disconnect because the child is like, hey, see me. And all they see reflected back is the parent's ideation of what they should be. And then the abyss between who the child believes they are and who they feel they should be grows wider. So you have, you know, in adulthood, you see all grown up children walking around lost and aimless, finding who it is they are. Why is it that you're doing this show to help children, grown children, recover what they once had? And that's a tragedy. Right, Because they had it. We all had it once. So what happens? What happens is that the parent, because of their unconsciousness and their being um, you know, completely overwhelmed by conditioning, pluck the child's essence out and, and shove all this unconscious garbage in, which has never been deconstructed. And they tell the child how to be. Then the child has to go through all their life and then one day have an epiphany or be vomiting on a bathroom floor, you know, overdose, that they begin to say, now I need to find who it is I am. Right. And that's this endless cycle. We're all on it. We're all reading my books and watching your shows to recover from the parenting we received. What is it that makes them cling so hard? And then how do you help them through it? It's really tricky, you know, from green beans to uh, having sex too young. It's knowing where that line is, you know. But it's the same thing, though. It's really, it's what's your stance as a parent. You know, can I shove those green beans down? Can I stop my kid from having sex? Like, what is my jurisdiction? What is that sovereign line? It's really tough. And the beauty of life, though, is that there is no line in stone. Most of it is in sand. Mm. And it's uncomfortable. Life is this eternal dance between the knowing and the not knowing, between the uh, possessing and complete non-possession, between the doing and the non-doing. Isn't life constantly the art of this? No more do you see it you know, played out than in the parent-child relationship. The child is asking you, guide me, control me, I don't know how to do it. And you're like, yeah, I'll do it, I'll help you, I'll show you. But then you like, then you suddenly reach a line where the child can't do it and can't do it your way. So now you have to back off. Then you go in and then you have to back off. You have to be there everything. You have to provide, care for and, you know, give everything, but you can't really own them. You know, it's this, it, this constant dance between stepping into the, the doing and the ego of it and your role as a parent to stepping completely out of it to understanding that your children are here ultimately to be their own sovereign beings. So you can try and pretend and identify with the role, but ultimately they're their own person. So you, and then you back off. You go close and then you have to back off. And if you don't, and you ramrod into your child because you don't see the line, no parent sees the line, 
you missed the line. The line was like way back. You should have stopped way back three years ago, right? But you kept going. Then the kid will create something to push you away. They'll either slam the door, they'll create the defense, they'll move to China. They'll do something to go, okay, back off now. I need to find who it is I am. Or they will wallow in an addiction because they don't know how where to go. Because you don't know your boundary, right, as a parent. I always say to people, you get the first three years right, you can relax. If you don't get the first three years right, you'll be, do, you'll be practicing remedial parenting for decades. And uh, what does screwing it up look like? And how would you know? Well, first of all, you'd know because there I am with my son and I'm not finding rest in it. So I don't know how to be there with him. I don't know how to be there for him. And I was like that. I was always waiting for my kids to grow older when I could intellectually engage them. And now we'll have something in common. But the sheer act of being or the sheer state of being, I could never achieve with them. And it's interesting because I look at my brothers. They're so wonderful with little kids. They're so spontaneously there for them. I never knew how to do that. Because the real relationship doesn't depend on words. It depends on the capacity to be with. And they can sense just that energy from you. I'm just here with you. Yeah. And I'm here. And I, and I, and I welcome your presence. Right. And I welcome you to exist in my presence. And I'm overjoyed to have you in my presence. Right. That's what the child needs from the parent. And that's communicated with body language and everything, everything. And, and through the energy that you exude. And they can feel it. They can absolutely feel it. Wow. They can't name it, but they can feel it. Okay, and that already starts changing their personality right there. That shifts their personality. They always say that mothers form a different bond than fathers. Is that just another way, an anachronism? M mothers form a different bond, but only because mothers are present with their kids. Whereas the fathers tend to visit the kids. I mean, you know, the father goes to work typically and then visits at home for a couple of hours and then takes off again next morning. Those fathers who stay home with their kids, they learn how to mother their kids. So it's not a gender issue, it's a relational issue. And, and the mothers allow themselves to be trained by the kids, whereas the fathers tend to impose their own expectations on the kid. This is not universal, I'm talking by and large. So those fathers who have the good fortune, like in the civilized countries where parents are given paternity leave, those fathers learn to relate to their kids in a different way than the average father somewhere else. Okay. We can be trained, but we have to be present for the training. In our culture, the children have a need to attach. They have a need to connect with somebody because without that connection, they don't survive. And in the hunter-gatherer bands where human beings evolved, those attachments were with adults. And not just one adult or two adults, but with a whole set of nurturing adults. Now in our culture, uh, We've deprived the kids of the parental presence for the most part. And the child's brain can't handle an attachment void where there's no attachment figure. And in the absence of the parent or the nurturing adult, the child will fill that void with the peer group. Now kids become far more peer attached than is healthy for them. And now peers become their models and their mentors and their, their templates for how to be, how to walk and how to talk. And as that happens, the kids push away from the parents because they're more, more minded to belong to the peer group, with, which has different values from the parents. And the kid's brain can't handle that competition. So the brain of the child will actually choose the peer group over the parent group. And where that goes, you can see on Facebook. 
and you can see it in the teenage gangs, and you can t- t- see it in the increasing frustration of parents who've lost the power to parent, because parents think that their power to parent comes from their the fact that they have the responsibility and the strength and the wisdom. It doesn't come from that. The power to parent comes from the desire of the child to belong to you. When the child is driven to belong to the peer group, because we've taken him out of his natural context, we lose the part of parent. What do we do then? We ratchet up the pressure. We become more authoritarian. We lose the authority, so we become authoritarian. And the more authoritarian we become, the more pressure we put on them, the more they resist. And now we label them with oppositional defiant disorder, and we call them obstreperous and bad and naughty kids. All they're doing is acting out their attachment dynamics. So if we want to discipline kids, we actually have to make them our disciples. And the disciple is not somebody who's afraid of you. The disciple is somebody who loves you and wants to belong to you and follow you. So, so discipline is the very opposite of punishment. First of all, you realize that the most important template, in fact, the essential template for the emotional development of the child as well as for the brain's healthy physiological development is a nurturing relationship with mutual responsive adults. That is the template for physiological brain development and healthy psychological development, psychological development. That means that anything that you do that undermines the relationship with the child will actually undermine the child's development because it makes the child insecure and kids in state of insecurity are in defensive flight or fight mode in which mode they don't learn anything. They just are defending. And so that every time I use the relationship against the child, so I have a two-year-old who's angry, and most psychologists and parenting experts will tell you, time out. In other words, what they're telling you is, withdraw the relationship from the child as a way of threatening the child. And that threat will make the child comply with you. Well, the child may temporarily comply with you, but what have you taught her? You've taught her that the relationship is conditional, that they're only acceptable to you if they please you. Furthermore, you've taught them that relationships are unstable and unreliable, and they've learned that you're not available for them when they're most upset. Because why is he acting out? Why is he showing a tantrum? Because they're frustrated about something, because they're angry about something, because they're unhappy. And you say to them, when you're most unhappy, that's when I'm least available to you. And this is how parents are taught to parent. Furthermore, parents are taught not to pick up the kids when they're crying. Let them sleep it out. Which is utterly noxious. Because the child who you don't pick up, what lesson do they get? Their emotions don't matter. That's the lesson they get. Just the opposite of what any loving parent wants to teach. So that the psychology, the parenting psychology in this culture has become anti-child. I wanted to make sure that however they were raised, that they retained the curiosity of childhood into adulthood. That implies that you have to do a lot of work to make it happen, when in fact, you'd be surprised how much work you put in to squash it. Okay, let's say there's a little toddler walking here, okay, crawling on the ground, it comes up, and they start grabbing this. What's the first thing? No, don't touch that! This was an experiment waiting to happen that you just squashed. This is a cup, it has water in it, okay? This is breakable. The kid doesn't know that. They want to experiment. So they'll grab it, it'll fall, it'll break, water will spill all over. That was an experiment you just prevented. You don't have kids with the intent of retaining a clean house. These are non-commensurate goals, okay? 
Kids are sources of chaos and and disorder. Get over that fact. And where does the disorder come from? It's because they are experimenting with their environment. Everything is new to them. Everything. Uh, I was in Central Park. We were just finishing one of the uh, Shakespeare in the Park performances. And it had rained a little earlier, so there were puddles in some of the walkways. I saw a woman walking with her kid. The kid has galoshes on and a raincoat on. And they're coming down the walkway. And there's this big, juicy, muddy puddle right there. And I said, please let the kid jump in the puddle. You know the kid wants to jump in the puddle. The kid is like three or four. You know the kid. And what what does the mother do? She pulls the kid around to prevent that from happening. That's an experiment in cratering. That's what craters happen that way. You splash the water. There's mud. It's fun. You get to see the cause and effect of a force Downward force operating on a on a fluid gone that was a bit of curiosity in that moment that was extinguished. So with our kids, curiosity provided it does not kill them, if it meant we had extra work in front of us, I would do that extra work. So your task is less to instill curiosity in your kids than it is to make sure you don't squash what's already there. And I have pretty high confidence that they'll retain that curiosity through the turbulent middle school years into high school. And what is an adult scientist? But a, a kid who's never lost the curiosity. And so in here, people ask about raising their kids. They ask about education. I, I can tell you this, if if we're if Einstein were here and we're talking with Einstein, we, we could talk to him for hours and hours and hours. And you know what question will never come out of our mouths? Is what college did you go to? <laughs> I want to go to that same college. I bet most of your people who've sat in this chair, it's not about what college they went to. It's about their own initiative, their own drive, their own ambitions, their own curiosity. That is not taught in school, sadly. School, they view you as this empty vessel that they pour information in, and you test it over here, you get a high grade, you're praised. You might even give the commencement speech. Is that who become the shakers and movers of the world? I don't think so. There'll be some of them, but not with the not with the totality of expectation that is brought upon those who succeed in school in that way. So I can just tell you that what has to change in schools, and I don't have a recipe yet, I just know the result, what the result has to be. It has to be, when you come down the steps on the last day of school, you are not singing the Alice Cooper song, School's Out Forever. You'll be, there'll be a sad song you'll be singing, saying, gee, I got to go two or three months without learning anything? You should be sad that school is over, not happy. And the fact that you're happy that school is over means something is not working in there. You're not enjoying the learning process. And on the other side of that is school should, as a minimum, preserve that curiosity for you. Yeah, if you lost some of it, because it's not going to be in all of us, put it back in. So that when you graduate school, you can give literal meaning to the word commencement. Commencement means beginning. It doesn't mean ending. And so you leave school and you say to yourself, I now know how to learn. I now have a curiosity of all things I have yet to be exposed to. And I will now become a lifelong learner. Without that, you become ossified in whatever was the body of knowledge that existed the day you graduated. 
and you will lead a life always looking back at that time without continuing to grow who and what you can become in life. I think we should all get as high grades as you can. But if you don't get the highest grades possible, no one should be standing in judgment of that. If you have some other ambitions that have pathways that don't get encoded in the GPA that other people are referencing. One thing my wife does is when a cadence just, well, he, he has a meltdown sometimes, yeah. sometimes on the sidewalk next to traffic. And so she just talks to him. Okay, I, I know you're really angry, Caden. And that might take five minutes. But yeah. when he's talking, she's like, okay, I know you're really angry, but we need to go. So I understand you're angry. And he's like, ah! And she just tries to talk. And then after a while, he'll, he'll, he's, he's listening or and hears the, the tone. He, that's, just, that's the whole point. He's responding as much to the energy and the tone as right. he is to the words. And uh, what she's teaching him is self-regulation. He's actually teaching that you can go through these states. It's okay. They'll pass. And this is how self-regulation happens. Not by, you mustn't yell, you mustn't cry, you know, and so on, this kind of punitive and accusatory stuff. Your wife's doing intuitively what needs to be done. What she's doing is, is instead of a time out, she's giving a time in. She's actually giving him her energy and her concern and her presence at that time, which is exactly what the child needs. And that way he'll learn self-regulation. Whereas when you react against his anger, all you're teaching him is self-suppression which is not the same as self-regulation. I got a stepdaughter when she was six. Right. She's now 14. Mm-hmm. Um, and you said some interesting things about stepchildren and stepfathers yeah. earlier. Well, step is an interesting word. Because why, why do we call them step-parents? Because they step into the role of the parent. And uh, in this book, Hold On To Your Kids, what we point out is that parenting is not a role. It's a relationship. So sometimes... I've seen very often the step-parent steps into the role and expects deference and compliance and love from the child. But why should the child offer them? She didn't ask you to marry her mother. That was her mother's decision, maybe for perfectly valid reasons, but let's not assume that the child is necessarily a party to it. And if you want to step into the role of parenting, you have to develop the relationship where the child wants to belong to you where the child's attachment drive is directed towards you. And then you'll be the parent. But let's not assume that it's a role, that simply you can start doing the right things without a relationship. And Krishnamurti, the the great teacher, said that the most important thing is relationship. And he said that without understanding relationship, any plan of action will only breed conflict. So it's that relationship that we have to get. that six-year-old whose mother married you at that age has already been through that difficult time because her parents divorced. Now, I don't need to know the circumstances, but I can tell you, no adults divorce without a fair bit of unhappiness. I mean, no two happy parents wake up on Saturday morning and say, it's been wonderful, I'm totally in love with you, goodbye. There's usually a period of alienation and, and, and stress and struggle and rancor. And the child has to endure all that. And the child has endured the loss, well, assuming that the father didn't die or something. But, but one way or the other, the child, the six-year-old, has endured the loss. Then you come along, and all of a sudden the mother forms a relationship with you. Why should that not be threatening to the child? She's already lost something. And all of a sudden there's a stranger in the home who mommy really loves. Well, every reason 
she might perhaps perceive you as a threat. Now, maybe she didn't. Maybe you formed a great relationship with her right from the beginning, and maybe she welcomed you into the home. But it can easily work the other way. In other words, all I'm saying is we have to understand that the parent's relationship with one another is not immediately transferable to the child. That, that, that a relationship has to build with the child, and that's what then gives you the power to parent, is the relationship that the child wants to give you and maintain with you. The power of parenting comes from the desire of the child to belong to you. And this is whether you're the step-parent or the biological parent. Conscious parenting is about being attuned to who your child is at the stage they're in. So it does require knowing some psychology. And it does require knowing developmentally where your child is. You know, I always say parents become parents. They don't take a single psychology course. They don't understand development. How is that possible? There needs to be some license, no? Don't you think? Like something, some qualifying exam. Horniness cannot be the only, <laughs> only. Like I was in love. No, that can't be a qualifier for raising a child. So being attuned to who your child is at their stage of development, understanding their brain, and then giving the input that's needed, of course, right? You, you do have a bedtime, right? You do aim for a bedtime, but you don't aim for a bedtime that's 734, right? You aim for a bedtime that's between 730 and 9. You're working with someone who's infinitely malleable, and you're, work, you're not working with a soldier or a puppet. So, but, but on the other hand, you do have to have a bedtime. So you understand what I'm saying? It's playing the dance of both. You create a, a, an inbuilt structure in your life, but you also don't go crazy and drive your kid nuts because now it's 8.05 and bedtime was supposed to be 7.30, right? You do it with the art of, of balancing the doing with the being. And ultimately being, as in connecting to the child, must triumph. So all too often you'll see parenting is all about the doing, all about the commands and the controls and the directives because we feel comfortable in the knowing. But really, the precious jewel of having children is to understand that they come here to teach you how to be, especially young children. They come here to teach you how to be in the present moment. Mm. And they ask you to shed your ideas of worth and identity and success. And they ask you to, to recognize, can you accept me for who it is I am? And you will see most parents do not accept their children for who it is they are because they're not good enough or great enough or fabulous enough or not some accolade enough not a degree enough. And then the, I show parents that the reason they can't do this, accept their child unequivocally for who it is they are, is because they haven't accepted themselves for who it is they are. My work seems to be about the parent-child relationship, mm. but it's really about healing the, the child within the parent. And in that respect, it's for every human being. I will agree. Because every that. human being is a child. So it's in the, um, under the umbrella and the guise of the parent wanting to pick up the book because it's about the child. But when they pick it up and they realize this is about how they have to yet confront who it is they truly are. So to your question, how do you develop the truest self? Well, most of us have been divorced from it. This is just the, the tragic truth for the reasons I said. We've been given a prescription. We've been raised through a conditioned lens, not a lens that truly honors who it is we are. So in order to now recover that, we have to peel back the layers. We have to undo all that has been done to us. So we have to re-question all that we should have never been given answers to and we should have been allowed to discover on our own, such as who is God, what is God, what is religion, what is beauty, what is achievement, what is success, what is truth. Right? Those questions, those big life questions should have been led to us, not given to us. We should have been led to discover them. They should not have been given to us packaged because maybe they don't work for us. 
And it is through the discovery of those answers that we discover who it is we are. And we discover our relationship with the universe. So we are robbing our children of this valuable process by handing them this list. All we need to do really is just to guide them. And the most essential thing we need to do is discover those answers for ourselves and value the sovereign right to muddle and fumble and stumble and mess up. Because when we value it and see how much it's given us, we let our children suffer. We let our children fumble because we know where it's going to take them because we saw where it took us. This is the greatest lesson for parents, to realize the power of pain and our desire to fix it for our children and to control it because we're trying to mitigate and control it for ourselves, but we've never been able to. But this is the universe's biggest lesson. You have to surrender. Life is pain. Life is unpredictable. It's it's a curveball. It's a crapshoot. It's an adventure. And if you don't live it, waking up every day saying, maybe this is the day I will fully give it all up and change and start anew. We're so afraid to mold the skin. So we'd much rather live in the conformity of stagnancy, you know, as long as we remain the same, you know, it's much easier. But life is not that. And our children come kind of ready to be that ever morphing. You look at a child crying biggest tears one moment and then gleefully excited the next. They have the capacity to morph. We rob them of this capacity. We stagnate, we rigidify them. So we need to learn from them. They live in every moment present. And whatever the present moment asks, they engage. And then they move to the next moment, ready again, new, beginner's mind. You know, so all spiritual lessons of the mystics are ever present in this potential of this moment. You know, and our children show us that. We're just afraid. Pain is the greatest teacher. Doesn't mean you self-flagellate and self-inflict. It just means you, you don't hold yourself back in the fear of it. You just live fully. What are the most important things we should be teaching young children in schools? To play fair. That's the most important thing that you can teach children. Because the fundamental ethic, like the ground of ethics, is fair play. And children practice that while they're playing. And so a lot of what should be happening in schools is play by children. A fair bit of it spontaneous, especially when they're very young but regulated by adults so that it remains fair, right? That it remains reciprocal. And you can tell that because children will continue to play a game if they believe the game is fair. When the game stops being fair, then it breaks down into squabbling and crying, which is what our games are breaking down into right now, right? And so then you need a mediator who comes in and and adjudicate, says, well, you know, how about if you try it this way? Maybe we need to adjust the rule. Let's see if we can get the game going again. It's very important for, for kids to learn how to play fair. And I'm afraid that a fair bit of our electronic technology is taking them away from the kinds of social interactions that they need to learn one-on-one to know how to play fair. I might be wrong about that because I don't know what effect video games have. And the, the evidence that they're bad isn't strong, you know, and, and they're new, so we really don't know. So that might be good enough. But that and, well, it'd be good to teach kids to read... We, we seem to be continually confused about whether or not that's a good idea. But we actually do know how to teach kids to read. You can use phonics pro, pro programs. And I believe computers could speed that along substantially. It'd be good to teach them to read. It's good to teach them to write. It's good to encourage them, you know. That's another thing. 
it's a good thing to know this just generally. Here's a real powerful technique that you might want to think about, man, because this is, this is worth knowing. Often when you have a family member um, or, or someone that you're interacting with and they make a mistake, then you call them out on their mistake. And it's pretty obvious when they make a mistake, eh? Because you're going along on a pathway together and then there's a divergence from the pathway and you notice that, that's negative emotion. And you say, you know, what the hell, what's going on? What you don't notice is all the time you're spending walking forward when it's going real well. And the reason for that is, what's well, going real well, so you mostly ignore it. But that's not so good. You've you got to wise up. So, like, if you're dealing with people in your own life, or yourself, for that matter, and you notice that the person that you're with or are has done something that you would like to see repeated many, perhaps many times, you might want to point it out. Say, look, you know, I just saw you do this thing, and I'm, I'm really happy about that. You, you, did a, you did a great job. I'm really happy about that. A little more of that would be wonderful. And, and just leave it be. And people are very thrilled about that because they're, and this is especially true of kids, is they're, they are looking for positive attention. They're looking for attention, period. That's their currency. They'll take negative attention if they can't get positive attention. But they really want positive attention. And what they really want is for someone to watch them and notice when they do something that makes them a good person and then have that pointed out. It's like, good work, kid. Way to be. I saw what you did. Here's what it was. Good job. I'm sure you could do a bunch more of that. And then they're just like, they're just thrilled that, that their action, their small child action was important enough to draw your focused attention toward. That makes them glow. And in the probability that that will help them continue to act in those ways is extremely, extremely uh, powerful. So, you know, if you're trying to get along with some kid, adolescent maybe, because they're kind of hard to get along with often, you know, watch them. And if they do something that's, it doesn't even have to be good. It just has to be better than what they're usually doing. That, you know, which, which is not a bad approximation of good. You know, it's like, look, I noticed that you, you know, you were... You were more pleasant tonight at the dinner table. Or maybe that's not quite the way of phrasing it. it because it, it's sort of an insult to the way they are before. You might say, well, because you have to be careful, right, when you, when you say these things. And, and not put a barb in it because you're kind of irritated. You, 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 you might say, um, it, was an, it was enjoyable having dinner with you tonight. And they'll kind of clue into why that might be. And they'll think, oh, well, you know, hey, it turns out to matter if I do something that's positive. And so that's... That's, that's, a, that's a piece of information about keeping your eyes open. So, well, so, what do we do with kids? Let them play. Make them play fair. That's really important. Teach them to read. That'd be good. Teach them to write. That'd be good. Teach them to stand up and speak for themselves. That would be good. You can teach a child to stand up pretty convincingly and say something intelligent in about 15 minutes if you do it carefully. And it almost never happens in school. It's really, it's really quite appalling. So that's another thing you can do for your kids is get them to stand up and say something. And, you know, not, not like this while talking to the floor and barely able to hear, you know, so that people have to strain and, and strive to hear them, but to stand up and to say something. And you can tell them, well, stand up a little more, you know, put your shoulders back a little more, a little more volume so I can hear you. It can be a little game. God, they learn that so fast you can hardly believe it. And I don't know why they're not taught that. I think, I think because people are afraid 
of competence. And so they're afraid to teach kids to be competent. And so we don't. And, and they kind of have to learn it on their own. And that's unfortunate, let's say. Say you've got a three-year-old kid and they're in, their room is chaos, right? There's monsters are going to be coming out under the bed in no time flat unless that thing room gets some order in it. And so you, you tell the kid, clean up the room. You know, it's a mess. And you leave and you come back and the kid's like throwing Legos everywhere. It's, they're not cleaning up. And then you think, that's a bad kid. That's a bad theory, eh? Because if you want to have a good fight with someone and destroy them, then that's what you do. You don't bother with the subtleties down here. You just go right, from the, right for the jugular. It's like you're a bad, stupid kid. You've always been that way. You're hopeless. There's not a chance of teaching you anything, right? And we can, that way you can nail the past, the present, and the future all in the same insult. You've always been a terrible person. You're, there's no teaching you, and your future is going to be exactly the same way. Then the only thing the person can do if you do that to them is hit you. Because that's, that's it. There's no, there's no coming back from that. You've boxed them completely in. So if you want to have a really unproductive argument, you go right for this. Past, present, and future, you're not a good person. Demolish their entire conceptual structure and expose them completely naked to chaos. It's like, great, you won the argument. So with the three-year-old, maybe what you do is you say... You, you, you pick the level of analysis at which they're actually functioning. And you say, and this is something you can do if you pay attention to a kid. And lots of people won't pay attention to children because they're terrified of them. They're terrified that they'll do something wrong with them. And, or that, that the kid won't like them or some damn thing. It's like, all you have to do to get a kid to like you is pay attention to the kid for like two seconds. And the kid will instantly like you. Because attention is so, it's such a, it's, it's the ultimate currency for children, right? They, they, they need adult attention because adults know way more than kids, and so they love attention. All you have to do is pay attention to them, and they will like you instantly. So you tell the kid, you see that teddy bear? The kid goes, yes. Then you've established that the child has mastered the art of perceiving a teddy bear, because they can say, yes, it's this complicated thing, man. It's like a six-month-old isn't going to do that. Three-month-old has got the whole teddy bear identification subroutine automatized. So, teddy bear, yes. Can you pick it up? Yes. Pat, pat, pat. Good work. Do you see the hole on that shelf? Yes. Can you put the teddy bear in that hole? Yes. Go over and do that. Pat, pat, pat. Great. Okay, now we'll do thing number two, thing number three. So you're building up the micro-routines of cleaning up the room from the bottom up, right? You're, you're building it into their body because you're starting with the things they've already automatized and building upwards towards abstraction. And so once the kid has all the micro-routines down, and maybe there's, a, I don't know, how many micro-routines are there to clean up your room? 200? Like, a lot, but not an infinite number. So you teach them all the micro-routines, and then you can say, run set of micro-routines, which means clean up room, and then they can do it. They know what it means. So, But you do the building from the bottom up.